0: Hey guys, it's Morgan here. I want to welcome you to Young Adults Today podcast, where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. I'm going to toss it over to our hosts,
1: Micah and Josiah Keneally.
0: What's up guys? Hope you're feeling alive right now. I'm Micah Keneally and I want to welcome you to youngadults.today podcast where we talk about reaching young adults in our world today. Like always, I'm joined by my husband and my co-host Josiah Keneally. Josiah, how are you doing today?
2: Doing great. Loving life, loving leadership, loving ministry. This is a great Day and we're gonna have some fun on this conversation.
0: He is well hydrated. He's had his tea, his orange juice, coffee. and his coffee. So,
2: and I got a bubbly here he's too. So, moved
0: on to some sparkling water. So, if you can about imagine how excited he's going to be. But we just want to um, welcome our inter or introduce our guest, Josiah. I know that your your path has crossed with him four or five years ago. I think initially. Yeah. And I don't wanna take away from that story. So I'm gonna let you introduce our special guest today. Who do we have behind the screen today?
2: Totally. Well, I'll just set this up by, Mike and I have been married just short of three years. And while we got engaged maybe just over th- three years ago mm-hmm. um, in 2017, but before that we were dating. And while we were just dating, um, we had we served in Minnesota Part of the we were on staff at I was on staff at Cedar Valley Church at the time and we do a district council event where all the leaders from the Minnesota Assemblies of God come together for our annual conference. Mm-hmm. And our district superintendent at the time, great friend of ours, a mentor of mine, Clarence St. John, emailed me and said, Josiah, when there's a national leader, I'd like you to meet them. Would you host a guest from out of town? Would you pick them up from the airport? Would you drop him off at the hotel and just bring him coffee, bring him donuts, anything he needs. Would you just help him out?" I'm like, I'm there for you. And uh, it was an awesome opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know who I was gonna get to cross paths with that April, but probably five years ago, Mm -hmm. Drew Berryessa flew to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and he is a speaker, one of the most talented speakers on the topic of gender, sexual identity, Um, brokenness wholeness that I've ever heard Mm -hmm. also he's a speaker and lastly he's an author he wrote a book called are we there yet and he has living letter ministries a living letter ministries and I don't want to take away from his story so drew welcome to the show thanks for being our friend. thanks for taking Mm -hmm. time today on a Friday to record on zoom and would you just kick us off drew by um, our audience is in for a treat they don't even know one of the most <laughs> needed topics for our audience to know about. Um, we mentioned just a little bit in the intro about your story, but would you just um, share with us your journey of life? Give us maybe a thirty thousand foot overview, and we'll come back to it.
1: Of course, of course. And first up, it's so good to be here with you today. And I fondly look back to my time at the Equip Conference and my first meeting with you, and uh, just so glad we got the chance to connect then and that we're connecting now. So, so I'm Drew and um, I've been a believer my entire life. I think it gave my life to Jesus when I was about four or five years old. And as many of us know, just because we follow Jesus and we love Jesus, it doesn't make us immune to our own humanity and to the potential of brokenness. And um, right when I was about 12 or 13 years old, after experiencing a lot of brokenness in my family and my family of origin, I recognized that I was struggling with unwanted same-sex attraction. And um, in our culture, uh, I was growing up in a conservative, very fundamentalist kind of uh, church environment, and it was not something that was very safe or or um, resourced for me to be able to talk about that. So struggled on my own in secrecy for a number of years. Um, did not want to experience these attractions, but uh, was really facing one of two, um, one of two dialogues in the culture of either in the church, this is the worst of all sins, you know, this is, this is, um, you know, God hates this, and and then on the other side of the spectrum, a world that says what you experience is who you are. Mm -hmm. And so had nowhere really to go with my, with my struggle, with my temptation had never heard a testimony in church of someone having overcome this or, or um, anything like that. So by the time I reached about 19 years old, I, I had this deeply conflicted place in my life where I was trying to just pray and, and, you know, as they say, pray away the gay and not having success with that and reaching a really a, a A tipping point in my relationship with the Lord where if you continue to pray for something to go away and it doesn't feel like God answers you and you feel this difficulty of of, um, I'm trying to live a life pleasing to you but this won't be addressed there's no one to talk to and feeling really disillusioned with the Lord and frustrated in my own struggle not willing to give up my relationship with the Lord I did what a lot of Christians do in that situation and I began to live a, a double life and indulge in this temptation um, while still trying to hold on to a relationship with the Lord very very tense place to be and um entered into a gay relationship with the guy I met at church because i wasn 't the only one struggling who didn 't have any answers and was left with with a lot of uh, conflict and and um, pain and so entered in that relationship for about six months and i 'll be really honest when I say that like you know, sin and and um, sexuality when they meet, you know, we we struggle with these things because they promise fulfillment, and we struggle with these things because they meet needs. And for me, for several months, it met some very deep needs that I had uh, for acceptance, for love, for affirmation. And just as the scripture says in Proverbs 27:7, "To him who is well fed, honey is not desirable, but to him who is starving." the bitter thing will seem to taste sweet. Well, I was starved for love. I was starved for affection. I was starved for acceptance. And in that season, the bitter thing seemed to taste sweet. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's just honest for us to be able to say things like that, that when we are struggling, sin provides or else we wouldn't do it. It provides satisfaction. It provides medication to our pain, but like all sin, it doesn't last. And for me, about three or four months into this relationship, I really began to feel convicted over what I was doing. I knew that I couldn't justify my behavior scripturally. I, I loved the Lord, even though I was struggling with sin and with this temptation and with and with these issues. And I reached a point where um, three or four months in, I began to have conversation with the Lord about it. And it, you know, it was really kind of one of those like, okay, Drew, if this is really what I want for you, then why are you lying and hiding it? And the Lord was really gentle with me to, to firmly confront what I was doing, but never reject me or never shame me. And that just wasn't what my experience was with the Lord with this issue in the church. And so it was really an interesting time to, to wrestle through this with him to the point where three more months after that, I reached that decision, that breaking point of like, I need to surrender this relationship. I need to repent of my sin. And I did that but I still did not have a safe place to go with other believers was fearing the rejection of the church and honestly probably would have experienced or feared very legitimately experiencing rejection from the church at that time and place and culture. And so hid for another two years um, what I had done and just jumped into service and jumped into ministry and jumped into everything to try to make up for in my own mind, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: how far I had fallen. And about two years after that, when you're just, anyone who's ever served the Lord out of compulsion like that knows that it's not, it's not a good plan. it it doesn't really work. And um, it's not really the relationship the Lord wants with us. And so got to a breaking point where I finally broke down and confessed to pastors in my life and to friends, what I'd been dealing with and was really met with incredible grace and incredible healing. And that began the journey of just really beginning to look beyond just the temptation and the struggle to the reasons why I was struggling. And at the time I was living in central Washington state in a small rural town, and the Lord really had some some great provision for me in moving me from there to Portland, Oregon, which is an odd place to go to recover from homosexuality, because by the way, um, seemed safer in rural Washington, but um, I'm, I got connected with a ministry in Portland called the Portland Fellowship, which uh, having never heard of anyone who experience transformation or redemption from the struggle to go from that to being put in the place where one of the most um, highly regarded and longstanding ministries of its kind was right in my backyard. Wow. And then um, and the Lord orchestrated that. And I got connected with Portland Fellowship and began to go to their discipleship program and met dozens of men and women who had experienced transformation in their life joined a weekly group with 80 other people who were walking through this this uh, transformational process and experienced incredible healing and insight into why those prayers of take this away never really were were working mm-hmm. because God does not take away our symptoms and numb our symptoms when really he's after a deeper root to address our pain and uh, begin to experience just a deep work of transformation in my heart and a change in my identity a change in my sexual feelings and thoughts and then after about two and a half three years of this um ended up meeting a woman (laughs) that um i'll tell you when you grow up struggling with same-sex attraction and then as a 20 something year old you meet a girl that you think is cute it's like going through puberty all over again it just wasn't fair (laughs) i mean like i felt like i was in middle school like do you like me check the box you know (laughs) And that's shameful for a 25-year-old. It's like, what, what am I doing? But met this woman, Suzanne, who uh, was the most amazing woman I've ever met in my entire life. And we ended up dating uh, for six months, got engaged. We were engaged for seven months, which was entirely too long to start our lives together. And got married. And we have now been married since uh, for 16 years. Incredible. 16 and a half years. I have now three beautiful daughters. It is almost 14, 12, and seven. And as I always say, having daughters makes me struggle with men very differently than I did in the past. Um, But for the greater part of the last 20 years have been in full-time ministry to men and women struggling with these issues, Mm -hmm. was in full-time vocational ministry, discipleship ministry for 11 years. And now I've spent the last uh, six years traveling the country and speaking to leaders and groups and helping the church be equipped to address these issues with truth and love. And so that's a 30,000 foot view of my life. And um, yeah.
0: We love it. Drew, I just want to say thank you so much for being vulnerable, being obedient, and sharing your story. Because this is something we're seeing in ministry, outside of ministry, in the marketplace, pretty much all over the globe. That people are wrestling with um, same-sex attraction. They're wrestling with... Where do I come from, my purpose, my orientation? How do I identify? What do I not identify with? And it just causes a lot of confusion um, for for all people involved, not just the the people struggling, but I think us as leaders who are undereducated, who don't understand um, the mindset or the concept or the attraction in that process of coming across an individual who comes to us and says, hey, this is what I'm wrestling with. What do I do? And as a leader, I haven't always felt equipped in those moments and I haven't, you know, always felt like, okay, Lord, how do I, how do I love this person and say like, I love you when they're telling me, but Micah, this is a part of who I am. And if you don't love this part of me, then you don't love me. So I mean, those are things I've come across with, with some dear friends since I was like, I mean, elementary for 30 years, I've been friends with these people. And seeing and choosing the lifestyle that you used to live, Drew, they're still in it. But I still pray for them every single day, trusting that they are going to hopefully have a redemptive story just like you. But in our world today, one of the biggest challenges in young adult people and what they're facing is sexual formation. And from the gender identity to sexual orientation to whatever behavior you want to attach to that, can you first of all, from your perspective, share where is the world going and where is it today?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a good question. And I think one of the things that we have to look at to understand where the world is going, where it's been and why it is where it is currently is there's there's this, there's this reality that uh, has been sold to us for years, for decades, that our experience determines our identity. Mm-hmm. And so what we are experiencing says, is the fundamental filter that we look at to say who we are. So when it comes to sexual identity, when it comes to gender identity, when it comes to sexual orientation issues, if I experience an attraction to the same sex, that means that I am this. And, and that's, that's an unconscious filter
0: mm-hmm. that
1: we've, we've begun agreeing with, even in like what you said of the, uh, if you don't accept this part of who I am, then you don't love me. And the reason we get to that place is because we agree that our experiences is determining who we are. That's great. And yeah, yeah and, it, and one of the things we have to wrestle with is, is the difference between what we're experiencing and what we're made for. So, what is our design? What is the intent of our design by the Lord versus what are we experiencing in the midst of it? And, you know, it's, it kind of reminds me of. Back in the book Judges, like when you see it over and over again, where it says, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. Mm-hmm. So it was this reliance on their experience and their interpretation of their experience to determine what was right, and then they moved in that. And I think we're very much in that spot today, particularly with sexuality, mm-hmm. because when someone is developing sexual orientation identity or gender identity, they're looking at what they are experiencing in their temptations, in their attractions. And they're interpreting that through a lens that says, this is determining who I am and this is revealing to me who I am rather than starting at the point to say, who did God design me to be and what experiences am I having that I need to run through the filter of God's intention rather than look at it
2: in the reverse order. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Perfect sense.
2: As you're talking, Drew, I just am reminded of a conversation I had a while back with a friend of mine who's in seminary right now. And he drew this quadrant that helped me understand and just view the world. And it's it's a common quadrant. And in the upper left is tradition, or like history. Mm -hmm. And especially when it comes to our faith, tradition and history, you might think of liturgical, you might think of You know, um, the fathers of the church, you know, the Mm -hmm. church history, church tradition, kneeling, standing, bowing. These are all things, communion, baptism. These are part of church history and tradition. The second quadrant, just one over to the right, is logic and just human reasoning, understanding, Mm -hmm. um, people skills, people smarts, book smarts, all uh, education. And then the lower part is in experiences, which you hit on that can shape our worldview and it does for all of us. And then the last one is the Bible, like God's word, God's wills, God's ways. And I think that just looking at, cause I think the question that you're answering and you're asking is what shapes your worldview?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Is it experiences? Is it tradition? Is it your logic and your human understanding and your reasoning of the world? Is it the Bible? And so I look at your story is one of its healing, its help, and its hope of Christ and transformation. And we, as listeners, learners, leaders today, we're not God, we're right. not experts, and we're not doctors or therapists. So my question to you, Drew, is: What is a pastor's role? Maybe a college pastor on a on a liberal college campus or any college campus, because mm-hmm. it's going to come into this. Um, even yeah. friends of ours are the deans of a Christian university, and they're walking through this right now. So what is a pastor or Christian leader, what is our role in specializing in this restoration process?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I'll give you a couple things that I think are really important and what have been really helpful in my life and how I've um, ministered to others in the same way. And I think one thing is that although I did say we have to look at that the fact that our experiences are informing our worldview, Mm -hmm. what we tend to do is um, because we know that those experiences are forming a bad worldview, we tend to overreact and invalidate experience Mm -hmm. and we want to shut it down because we don't want you basing your truth or your life on that experience. And inadvertently what we do is we become really, we lack empathy for the experience that someone has had and validating the real experience. So You know, when I talk to someone about their same-sex attraction, you know, I I honor the fact that they're having a real experience. You know, this isn't—they're not deceived that they're having an experience. They might be mis—they might be interpreting that experience too far into their identity, but that doesn't mean that they're not legitimately having a painful and a real and a powerful experience. And so, validating that does not does not undermine our biblical fidelity. It doesn't. It doesn't push someone further into embracing it. In fact, it gives us it gives us uh, permission and authority to then begin to help them interpret and and minister to the experience because we're actually validating that it exists. So when someone says, "This is my experience," you know, I'm I'm experiencing these attractions. I don't try to talk them out of the attractions. Mm-hmm. I I start with like, "Man, that's powerful, and that's real, and that's really hard." You know, and I don't go to try to explain why they're there. I just need to validate it first. Yeah. And, and hear the impact that it's having on a person's life and try to put yourself in the position of how would I be emotionally and logically processing this if this was me? Because, you know, when someone is experiencing same-sex attraction and they're looking at the whole world's telling them it's unchangeable and this is who they are and their, their attractions are very powerful and real and persistent if I say to you, well, that's wrong and you need to be obedient. Well, what does that mean for their future? Mm -hmm. If there's no guarantee this will change and it is consistent and persistent, I just completely invalidated the difficulty of what I've just said, you know? And so sitting with someone saying, man, that's a heavy load and that's real. And it's, and it's powerful and it's painful to think about what if, what if I don't have permission to indulge this?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What life am I going to live? And what's the weight on my shoulders if I really do submit to the teachings of Jesus, the traditional teachings of Jesus in this? That's heavy. Mm-hmm. And so just to start with that validation of like, this is a difficult road. And you're having this experience. I'm not going to try to talk you out of your experience, but I want to help you interpret it. And the only way I can help you interpret it, if I, if I validate that it's even there. Right. So that's one of the first things. Is that as pastors, we start with empathy. We listen to the stories. We we make sure that people know that we're going to be with them. Um, one thing that was really helpful for me when I was first walking this out is, you know, as as I had empathy from people and it gave me, pr- I began thinking through my struggle not in terms of my identity, but rather this is what I'm experiencing and God has intention for my life outside of this. And I began getting on this train of like, I'm going to pursue the Lord and I'm going to surrender this. Of course, I had really bad days once in a while. And I was like, I hate all of this. I'm giving up. You know, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too hard. And I had a pastor that was a good friend. And when I had those blow ups, he would just listen. And he would say, yeah, this is really hard. And start with that empathy. And then he would say, what do you want from your life? Mm-hmm. Outside of how difficult this is, outside of how you feel right now, what is it that you want your life to look like and he reminded me of 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 what my actual desire and my heart's desire was for my life to re- bring me back to the big picture of like for me i I wanted to please the lord i wanted i wanted to have a wife, I wanted to have a family i wanted to to um you know there's so many things in my life that I wanted that were That had nothing to do with my struggle. Mm -hmm. And so he would bring me back to, regardless of how it feels, we're going to, we're going to bear this burden with you. We're going to listen to what you're going through and there's room for your doubts and there's room for your fears and there's room for your frustration. And at the end of the day, what choices are you going to make that are going to get you closer to that goal? Mm -hmm. So he would remind me of what my actual heart was and my actual desire was outside of what I was experiencing that make sense?
0: Yeah, that's that's beautiful. I think that helps the listener. I think it helps us as leaders to help identify where have we been approaching it properly and maybe helpful to the individual who's coming to us versus how have we come across as, well, we just need to fix this mindset. We need to fix this behavior or modify this behavior and You know, like there's, there's healthy and there's unhealthy. And how do we approach somebody who does want to seek the breakthrough, who is desiring the relationship with the Lord, who wants to ensure that my salvation and my relationship with Christ is authentic, but how do I manage this other portion of my flesh wanting to act out, but wanting and desiring the spirit more. And that is kind of the tension that you've been describing is it's a war inside of you, that Mm -hmm. the battle has been won initially by the blood of jesus christ but how do i as one person wrestling with this you know what is my first step and you had said very specific words i just kind of took some notes so like we want to validate we want to recognize we want to honor that an individual is having an experience and not look at them this is my words like not look at them as a problem to be fixed Mm yeah point them to christ in the process so it sounds like the gentleman that was introduced in your life put it back on you drew what do you want your life to look like without this portion how do you get there not how do we get there i'm here for you but i think as pastors we used to be like let's fix it let's be done with it let's move on god is good you know but what would you say and how can we practically love serve, and help struggling, hurting young adults in our ministries, maybe even in the marketplace that we come across, with the next steps that could help assist them versus hurt them or push them further away from God, the church, or maybe even ourselves?
1: Yeah, well, I think that's such a good question, by the way. You're so smart. Um, (laughs) 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 Oh, you are. I think one of the things... I think that one of the things that we owe our next generation um, in the church is that we need to shift our response to issues like this away from trying to refute the arguments of culture and actually present vision for what God has intended for sexuality and relationships. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the tactic that we've been in in the church is responding to false theology, responding to cultural ideas and trying to tell everyone why those aren't right without actually casting a vision and setting a direction for what we're supposed to pursue and you know that's one thing is is we get into sin management and behavioral modification when we focus on what we're not supposed to be doing right but we we cast vision and we we call people to more when we actually have a goal and a vision and a purpose to pursue and i always think that pursuing you know, pursuit is stronger than resistance anyway. Wow. You know, I can stand and try to push, you know, hold back the enemy all day long, and I might be able to do it for a little while, but that gets that gets really tiresome. But if I am so preoccupied with where God has called me that I'm pursuing that, I don't have to push away the devil. I'm already out of his neighborhood. I'm going somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we owe this next generation a clear vision of what God has intended for sexuality mm-hmm. beyond the do's and the don'ts, like what's, what's God's heart. And that that's going to take some time for us as a church to really fight for that understanding and to know how to communicate it. So I think that, that um, owning up to the fact that we haven't done a great job of that, that we, and especially for those in the in ministry that have never had to deal with this issue, I'm going to say something that's going to probably shake a few people just because you're heterosexual doesn't mean you're sexually healthy. Right? Right. And so really owning the reality that, that um, there's deeper, more powerful, and God-honoring reality in sexuality and marriage than just, are you attracted to the opposite sex? Mm-hmm. And being willing to own as the church where we have not reflected God's heart in sexuality, in heterosexuality because the battle isn't really homosexual versus heterosexual, it's are we reflecting the intention of God in our sexuality, whether we're married, whether we're single, whether we're same sex attracted or opposite sex attracted, whether we have gender identity disorder or whether we are fully secure in who we are in our gender, are we reflecting God's heart and intention? And setting that as the goal, rather than trying to address every which way that people are not meeting the goal, and, and talking people out of bad theology rather than talking them into good theology. And there's a statement that we say right here at our church is God's ability to lead us is greater than the enemy's ability to deceive us. Wow.
0: Ooh, that's good.
1: So, I mean, that's, that's something that we as ministers have the responsibility to do is to, to communicate where God is leading us rather than focusing completely on what the enemy is trying to do to deceive
2: us. Mm-hmm. does that make sense oh yeah i think it really does true because <clears throat> what stands out to me is this quote you said that pursuit is stronger than resistance and i even think of like magnets for a second this is yeah. just when you said that i just pictured the the two magnets that you like hold and what's crazy is like when they lock and when they're when they lock these magnets it's like
0: can't get them apart. Good, good luck <laughs> getting them
2: apart, but it's like yeah. they also have a resistance power mm-hmm. yeah do. but it's like it, i I don't know I, it'd be fun to study the math of that, but I just look at pursuit is stronger than resistance and and then my words of just how I'm processing this is a pastor, a Christian leader, uh, a mentor, a disciple, or somebody who's leading a small group can either deflate mm-hmm. and discourage anyone. They, they, yeah. Like We have this power in our tongue, in our words, mm-hmm. in our actions, in our attitudes, our teaching. Um, we can either deflate or discourage, or we can use the word of God to build up, to exhort, Amen. to empower, and to equip. And that's that picture you're painting of, are we just saying don't do this? Are we actually giving mm-hmm. people, equipping them for lives of righteousness? This is what this the is word you created right, like this is what we're aiming at is Jesus, like we're trying to fall more in love with him, and something that you like I've just been learning a lot is what Barna group says sixty six percent two thirds of young adults say that they don't know that someone believes in them, yeah, this is just people, this is just people for a second mm-hmm. eighteen to twenty nine year olds and I look at the tremendous opportunity that a pastor had in your life to be with you, yeah, and to believe in you and to just be a friend, be a presence in your life, a force for good. And I, I've also been in the midst of this coronavirus meditating on psalm twenty three yeah, and like David's saying he's like, even though I walk through the darkest valley, whatever that valley is in our life, I will not fear. And I'm just yeah. blown away by this. like, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I won't fear. And then he says, why? Because you're with me. Yeah. And the power of the presence of Jesus in our life, the power of the presence of a Jesus follower in our life is such a force to be reckoned with. And so what I'd ask you in response to that, what was the tipping point, Drew, for you in your story of encountering Christ? or? Was there tipping points and, and what helped along the way? And also, could you share what hurt or hindered the process?
1: Yeah, I think the tipping point for me, um, you know, there's this concept like we, we are forgiven by the Lord in our sin when we confess to him. But in the book of James, it says that we're, we're healed when we confess to one another. And so there's this, when I finally opened up and was honest in my life about what I was dealing with, Um, the youth pastor and wife that I, that I was connected with, I'll never forget the day sitting in their living room coming to this point of confession. And when I finally was able to like own up, this is what I'm dealing with. And they revealed to me that they had known for two years and hadn't confronted me about it. um, I was blown away. And I looked at them and like, well, what do you mean you've known? Like you, you would have rejected me if you knew all this time, you would have done all, like I had this, this, this belief in my head of what it would look like to have been to have confessed this and how they would have responded to me. And, you know, and not, this is not a one size fits all sort of thing. So I'm going to say that right here. They followed the leading of the Holy spirit to know that when they saw the sin in my life, they needed to wait for me to come to them. And when they did that, I had to process two years of their faithful friendship and acceptance and patience and love as the most tangible proof in my life to that point that God loved me and he was with me because they had done that and they had waited for me. And so when I, when I was processing that, I said, well, why did you wait? They looked at me and they said, well, we love you and we wanted you to feel safe enough to tell us yourself. And what that communicated to me was, was that I was safe with the body of Christ. It it might seem sound simplistic, but it was, the world of difference to me to be able to go from fearing and believing I was going to be rejected to knowing I had not been rejected and I would not be rejected and that they were with me. And that communicated God's heart to me more than anything to that point ever had. And so that became a tipping point for me because it was like, I'm safe with Jesus. Right. And, and when, um, when that shifted, suddenly the enemy's ability to, to push me into fear, got broken. It just wasn't there anymore. And so I think that's one of the reasons why I'm a huge proponent of, of becoming safe people. Like, you know, being places of safety for people to confess Mm -hmm. what they're dealing with without immediately trying to fix the problem. Um, That tension point of, of truth and love is also huge where them being safe did not mean they didn't express to me their convictions. They told me they didn't, they, that this was sin. They told me that this was needed to be repented of. They, 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 were not, they were not ambiguous about where they stood with this. But what was clear to me is that their convictions uh, on, on what was right or wrong had nothing to do whether I was acceptable as someone to love or not. And that's, that's something that we as the church haven't done a great job at. Right. You know, sometimes we see people that are in consistent sin, and when they don't repent quick quick enough, we we end up pushing them to this place of rejection or discipline that isn't actually discipline; it's rejection. Wow. And so, when I was safe to struggle, and I was told the truth, but I was the demonstration of incarnational love was profoundly real in my life. That made that made the difference. It was the tipping point for me that gave me permission to wrestle and to have the conversations with other people that I was only having in my own head with my own resources, which you can't do because it doesn't help. Yeah. Um, And then it gave me the place to go to actually wrestle this stuff out. Now I've watched people throughout the years who have both been successful at overcoming this and have been unsuccessful at overcoming this. And the difference that I see is confession, honesty, and community. Do they have safe places to go where they tell the full truth about what they're experiencing? And are they met with people who are honest, truthful and loving? And when they are, they, they are successful walking this transformational process out. When they're not, they're just, they, they aren't successful. Right. So that tipping point for me was definitely that incarnational love that, that showed safety and gave me the permission to confess um, I think also realizing that I had the responsibility to cultivate my life the way that I wanted that I the way that I wanted to and cultivate towards where I wanted my life to go. So um, there was a realization in that that also took into consideration I had cultivated wrongly in my life. So I had to expect that I was going to reap some of those consequences. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like confession does not change your history. Confession does not give you amnesia. Jesus does not take away our our history, our memory, or the consequences temporally of our sin. Right. And so I think a lot of people get super discouraged with, with several sin struggles when they come to Jesus, they're forgiven, they confess, and then memories or temptations come up. And it's like, well, it didn't work. It's like, what do you mean it didn't work? You are forgiven. You're cleansed eternally. It worked. Like, the other part is just... The Bible proving itself true that when we sow to the flesh, we reap from the flesh destruction. And when yeah. we sow to the spirit, we, we reap life. And there was a lot of reaping of destruction that I had to walk through and consistently remind myself, this isn't, this isn't evidence that Jesus doesn't work. This is evidence that the Bible is true. And wow. that I, I cultivated these things. And if I continue to cultivate them, they're going to continue to, to I'm going to continue to harvest them. But if I stop cultivating them, I might harvest it for a little while but eventually those weeds are going to run out i'm going to pull them out and they're going to be gone and what do i want to cultivate instead so does that make
0: sense oh of course it does i think that's unfortunately a lot of individuals who are where you were have not experienced that breakthrough moment of trust and a safe place to process and loving friends that allowed you to be the one to come forth And i think that's a great reminder an approach for the church to be mindful like hey be spirit led in the process yeah. but don't try to overwhelmingly correct call out condemn you know the person who is wrestling and struggling and I know I know this is an impossible question Drew because you can't change it <laughs> but if you could tell your younger self something what do you wish you could tell them
1: mm. Well, first, that mullets were not a good hair choice. Um, they uh, never
0: were. They hey, never I were. Had had one.
1: were I had one. You have one currently? No, 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 Had. I had. Oh, I was like, <laughs> Josiah, come on.
0: You married.
1: Uh, he should know better. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that probably the, the thing that if I could go back to my younger self and, and talk to, I would, I would go way back, you know, before even the formation or the reaping of, like, same-sex attraction began to rear its head, I think that what I would go back to is the the five- or six-year-old Drew who really believed that my relationship with God was based on my performance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because so much destruction in my life was reaped with this wrong belief in God that he only loved me when I was good and he was angry with me when I wasn't. Wow. And you know, that, that has been harder to unwire in me than same-sex attraction. You know, believing in the unconditional love of God, knowing that he is for me and not against me, knowing that discipline is not anger, and it's not, it's not, um, it's not retribution. Mm-hmm. It's not his wrath for him to discipline me, and he disciplines me because he loves me and he loves me more than i can comprehend. So if i could if i could go back cuz that lesson made it really difficult for me to come to the lord with confession because when you're fearing an anger response or when you're fearing that he's going to love you less if you admit the wrong that you're thinking you don't come to him. Right. You know, if i if i had built into my life the reality that god loved me and wanted me to run into his presence when i was struggling rather than try to hide from him. That would have changed a lot for me. And so I think that when we are addressing this issue for people, we have to keep in mind what, it, what are the filters that we're viewing God the Father through? Because more than our sexuality, that's a bigger issue. Right. And honestly, that's like God has been more concerned with my relationship with him than he's been concerned about my sexuality and my experience. He wants me to know him. He wants me to understand his heart for me more than he wants to take away or has wanted to take away the symptoms of my sexual brokenness. Mm-hmm. Those other things get worked out. Symptoms get worked out when you get to the cause. And so um, that's, that's probably what I would go back and tell young little fuzzy headed mulleted Drew is <laughs> cut off the mullet uh, <laughs> and believe that God loves you because you're his, not because you're perfect or you perform well.
2: That's good. Wow. Well, you know, and I, I pray that that sets people free today who walk in the same reality because I think that's not a limited, I think that's a human thing that yeah. we that we can earn or strive or perform. And mm-hmm. I think what God's saying is shame off of people and, you know, that we don't need to strive any longer. And so... We have a, a last session of five thoughts in five minutes, but Drew, is there anything else that God's downloading in your heart to young leaders that, that you'd want to share before we dive into five fast questions in five minutes? Yeah. What else is God speaking to you? What's What's stirring in your soul right now?
1: I think even in response to that last question, there's such a tendency in in, in reaction in the body of Christ that we have in many ways reacted to maybe uh, legalism or performance-based theology. And it is, is very right for us to say, God loves us regardless of how we perform mm. and our life and our choices affect our relationship with the Lord, not because he's rejecting us, not because he loves us any less, but the greatest commandment is love the Lord, your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, God's love for me doesn't change. When I'm his, I'm his, but my love for him has changed based on how I live. Mm -hmm. And there are many things that I cultivated in life that pulled my heart away from him. It wasn't him distancing, it was me. And so although I would tell young Drew, God's love for you is unchanging, doesn't mean my love for him has not been unchanging. And I have the responsibility to cultivate that relationship because it's never him that moves. It's always me. And so I think that's a balanced message we need to hear because it's not, it's not the same thing as like focusing on performance or focusing on legalism. It's just ownership of our own relational integrity.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, God always loves us. When we are his, we are his, he loves us. He can't love us more. He won't love us less, but that does not mean we love him well. And a lot of the rhetoric in, in the body of Christ concerning homosexuality, they focus so much on like God's love, God's love, God's love. Yes, God's love. But what about our response to that love and how we steward that love and what does it look like to love him back? Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's something I just want to challenge anybody today. Um, let's settle it, this in our hearts. If we are, if we belong to Jesus, he loves us. We belong to the father. He loves us. But what about us? How are we demonstrating and cultivating that love relationship with him? That's mm-hmm. a challenge i'd like to
2: say that is phenomenal and i think that <clears throat> brilliant minds throughout christian history would affirm what you just said dr charles stanley he says it this way the most important thing in the world is your personal relationship with jesus yeah. and it's up to us to cultivate that to, mm-hmm. to love him to pursue him mm-hmm. to he's yeah. there so we yeah. get to know him. We get to be known by this great God and mm-hmm. Savior. And I think of even—I think it was Dallas Willer, this theologian, college professor. He said that what you think about, in other words, what comes into your mind when you think about God, is the most important part of you, yep. because your yep. mind—it's mm-hmm. like your thoughts, and your thoughts are a gateway to your soul, and it's a window into your core of your being. Of what you think and how you interpret yeah so um i just agree a lot with what you said
0: all right Uh, are you ready we got five i'm ready we got five minutes five questions i always do a michael phelps stretch don't ask me why but i do it behind the scenes for you i don't know if that helps but drew question number one what trends do you see in your travels happening across the landscape of young adult ministry in the church
1: hmm Wow. I, I think on a positive trend that is exasperated by COVID-19 pandemic is that we are, we are moving more towards deeper relational connection and distraction, um, like activity and superfluous stuff. Really, it doesn't help us in ministry to young adults. What we really are striving for and longing for is authentic connection. And, um, I think that with what's happening in our world right now, all the noise and all the distraction and all the superfluous stuff is being stripped away. And people are really having to contend with, do I actually have strong relationships? Do people actually know me? Because the only thing I can do is talk to you right now, either over the phone or over, you know, zoom or over whatever. And all the things that ease and, and distract from whether relationship is strong It doesn't exist anymore right now. And so that's also the gift of the season that we're in, is the trend is for a deeper longing for authentic connection and relationship. And that's also where we have not been equipped. And we haven't really known how to do it. And so I see people moving away from the superfluous and trying to get to the deeper, richer thing of community. I think it's what we need. Great answer.
2: And what an opportunity as college pastors, as young adult ministry leaders, that we get to lean into that and facilitate these deep relationships and community. And so, Drew, personally, Micah and I are in a season where we're trying to collect information and advice. And so we wanna know from you some parenting advice. How has your life experience impacted the way you parent? And can you give us soon-to-be parents or maybe some listeners who are thinking about having children some advice about parenting oh sure yeah yeah
1: um i think that uh one of the things that my life my experiences has, has taught me about how to parent and i have three kids right now that so far they're not sociopaths so we're doing pretty good um
0: <laughs> covid's not over yet no i'm just
1: kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean the young one is shifty i'm not gonna lie to you our little with bailey is she's either gonna be a great force for good or not like but you know bye, we're bye
0: for the lord don't worry
1: Yes, yes. I think that the first thing that we really uh, do is we have very honest and very um, engaged conversation with our kids. Um, I think that generationally as we've gone, um, I know my parents with their parents, they didn't have honest investment or conversation. And I know growing up in the 80s, we were almost feral children. It's like, you know, you send your kids out and you hope they come back by dusk, you know, and and now – I mean, there's so much that we do with our kids that that cultivate trust and open conversation. Don't get me wrong; they're not my friends, but we have, you know, we have good, open, honest conversations all the time. So my kids, we started having conversations with them about sexuality when they were like five years old, and at cognitive and age-appropriate ways, we just opened the dialogue, and we had conversations to the point where now my my almost 14-year-old, she talks to us about everything. You know, she talks to us about without any fear or shame, absolutely everything that she's walking through. And, you know, for me as a dad, like, you know, three daughters, there's a lot of stuff that a lot of dads in our, you know, previous generation would not have ever felt comfortable or equipped to talk about. Well, you know, my daughters, my wife was on a trip when all the first two had their first periods. Like, That was dad's job to figure out and and to talk to And it was nothing in our house. It was like, hey dad, this is what's going on. I'm like, okay, well let's deal with that and this and this. How you doing, what's going on? Like, I don't know another dad out there that would have been not just like, you know, (laughs) freaking out. And we're like, I don't know what to, you know, and we just have cultivated honest, safe (laughs) conversation. With that comes also humanity and the reality that it, is, that it does not undermine our authority as parents to own and admit to our children when we're wrong mm-hmm. and to ask their forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So the reason we have such authority with our kids is we don't, we, we are not too prideful to say to them, you know what, my reaction was wrong or my interpretation of this is wrong or the way I treated you was wrong, please forgive me. And I'm still the leader. And I'm still your dad and I still have authority here. And so, I mean, it might sound simplistic, but we are so relationally poor in our country. Wow. That fighting for deep, connected, safe relationship is so incredibly important. And our kids are gonna model and, and live out in their life, in the culture that they get to lead someday, the relational dynamics that we implant in them today. Mm-hmm. So- Definitely.
0: If you yeah. don't raise your kids, somebody else will, right?
1: Yeah, and we th- those people are lunatics. We don't so we want need those. No, oh. no. Oh, no. gosh.
0: All right, Drew, here we're going to flip the script real quick for the third question. If you could Do ask it. us one question, what would you ask us today?
1: Mm, that's good. Um, Choose wisely. I, yeah. <laughs> <I'm>, my, my, <laughs> I would say what, what uh, were you surprised by in ministry that you were never equipped to deal with outside of sexuality, because we've been talking about sexuality all day, like what what crisis or conversation or question has made you reevaluate your faith and have to dig deeper that you didn't expect? Oh, dig deeper in my I could
2: I could go you quick, go first. Uh, or first quick, because this came into my mind that I wasn't even thinking about, but when you asked that question, I wish somebody would have told me that ministry is forever but the season isn't forever and what i mean is like i remember the first time our pastor retired I, on mm-hmm. staff at the church that i was a part of and like i knew he was reaching retirement age but i had kind of believed them myth, we're in this together forever i remember right. when the first young adults like moved away and, and right. another job out of state and that's happened about a million times since but that first cut was like oh it was devastating or even my first ministry transition of job like I don't know why because I knew that it wasn't forever it was a role but I'm like wow that was so emotionally hard for me to process and it's like I found Jesus the most during that time and I I found
0: Mm. who
2: I am the most of self-awareness during that time so I guess that, that's just mine that surprised me <laughs> right now that I yeah. said that. Up.
0: Oh man I think I have several of them but one question that I receive a lot from young adults even when I was on a Catholic Christian university even when I was at North Central University downtown Minneapolis and it was the number one question I got I was 10 average probably 8 to 10 years older than the fellow students I was sitting in classrooms with and the question that like rattled my cage the most that I've never had a I've never had a problem with more or less is how do you make friends? Mm. That was the question I got from like 22 year olds. Micah, how do you make friends? And I'm like, that's a foreign question to me. Like, what do you mean? How do you make friends? You invest, you know? So I think for me being called into ministry as a young adult and ministering to young adults, starting at age 25 was uh, also a foreign concept to me when I had people 35 looking to meet, Micah, will you mentor me? okay, now I really need to dig into the word of God theologically. I need to know where they're at spiritually. So I, people have always come to me as a mentor, even if they are 20 to 30 years older and even if they are 10 years younger. So I feel the weight of what God's called me to do in a very unique way that I wasn't necessarily expecting. Like when God says, Mike, I have amazing plans for you. Okay, great. But then you get to that plan of which he's asking you to step into and you're like, that person's 62 years old. I asked them to be my mentor and I'm their mentor now. Like my mind's yeah. is blowing. So for me, I think is a couple of things. How do you make friends? How do you do ministry and mentor out like processing the difference? Am I a mentor to you? Am I a pastor to you or my friend to you? And how do I separate those boundaries? Because I can't give all of myself to you. If I'm mentoring you in the sense of, everything I've walked through versus a spouse or a best friend who was with me in an ugly season. So those yeah. are things you don't know until you get there and you are processing how to walk through that you're like, yeah. who are my friends? Who am I mentoring? What does God call me to do? Because everybody is pulling on different limbs. At times you're like, I don't know. Yep. I don't know who I am in this conversation. What do you need for me?
1: <laughs> right. So I love that both of your answers are relational their relational issues of like how the relational dynamics of a season changing or the relational dynamics of how do I meet the needs and, and categorize everyone in the midst of it. So truly there was some wisdom in the Lord, like his greatest commandments are relational because relationship is what it's all about. So yeah. Awesome. Thank you guys.
2: Oh, that, that's fun. That's a good question. <clears throat> and so back to you, Drew, would you be willing to share with us one of the most epic failures you've ever experienced, whether it's life, leadership, ministry, you name it?
1: Oh, I have so many. <laughs> um, but yes, I will. I think that probably the one that was the most painful um, and the most instructive and has shaped the way that I approach my own ministry was uh, I have an identical twin brother. And before I get into any of this, I have his permission to share this stuff. I asked his permission to share our about our relationship and our dynamic before I ever entered public ministry. So for anyone who's wondering, does his brother know he's saying this? Yeah, my brother knows. I, I share all this stuff. <clears throat> but my identical twin brother uh, identifies as gay. He is married to a man and he, you know, very much lives a very different life than me. And we've had to wrestle through all that. Well, Back when he first came out, I was already in ministry to men and women walking out of this. I had my own testimony of this. And I had, you know, the conventional wisdom of, oh, and he also uh, identifies as a Christian. Mm -hmm. So that complicated our relationship profoundly. Um, And the conventional wisdom back then was, you know, if you have someone in your life who's a believer, who's in sexual immorality, you cut them out. Like you follow that first Corinthians, you know, five teaching of don't even eat with such a man, you know, kind of reality, and you cut them out so that they will experience uh in a little way what they might experience in eternity if they don't repent. And essentially what that is, is that's, uh, that interpretation of that scripture is very much trying to manipulate a person's conviction and their response to God.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and I did it. I fully rejected my brother. I I called him to repentance, quote unquote, in this manner, and it did nothing but push him further into his community. And it was so hurtful and so um, wrong and prideful of me. There was such a self-righteous position of, of, that I was taking and so much responsibility that I was trying to superimpose on myself to be the voice of conviction to my brother. And it just wreaked an incredible amount of damage in both of our lives. And it was a huge failure Mm -hmm. on my part. It was a role that the Lord did not ask me to take. Mm -hmm. It was responsibility that was not on my shoulders. And it treated my brother like a problem to fix and not a person to love. Wow. And I remember the day the Lord told me, you need to repent to your brother. And I was like, oh, no, no. You know, I'm the good one. Like I'm the obedient, like follower. You know, and it it really was this this moment of like I had to I needed to choose who I was going to be to my brother. Was it going to be exactly what I needed in my life in order to to um, to be a safe person that if conviction came,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then he could go to, or was I going to continue to be that older brother in the prodigal son story of like how dare we throw a party for this, you know, rebellious, you know, irresponsible, you know, I, and I didn't want to be that brother. And so I went to to my brother and I, I repented to him. I said, you know, I took on responsibility for your salvation, for your relationship with the Lord, for your conviction that I did not have the right or the responsibility to do. And in the process, I hurt you and I rejected you. And I told him I'm, Exactly where I was in my conviction of what your behavior is. I don't agree with your, your beliefs. I don't agree with your behavior. I believe that you're in sin. And I am called to love you. And I am called to be a person who is safe for you. And being honest with you about my convictions does not make me unsafe. How I treat you in regard to my convictions makes me safe or unsafe. Mm-hmm. And so repenting to him and asking his forgiveness was incredibly humbling and incredibly difficult. And I'll be honest, a lot of people in, in my sphere did not agree with my choice to do that. And they've had a problem. Some people have had a problem with the way that I've lived out this, this relationship with my brother because they still go back to that whole, you should be rejecting him. And I would call us to have a deeper dive on what that first Corinthians passage really says. Mm-hmm. When and what it really means and the implications that it means for how we treat the person who is in sexual immorality and calls themselves a believer. I think there's a lot that we can look at that in that and understand a much better way of being faithful to the scripture and also being um, relationally healthy. But I digress. Um, Repenting to him and owning my failure in that has been one of the most profound failures of my life but is also shaped and formed me to administer the way that I do, which only proves the point that Mm -hmm. that God redeems everything Mm -hmm. and that he will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes and for his glory. And he has taken that great failure and made it very, very helpful for me. So that's, that's the one I would choose.
0: Drew, thank you for being honest and just real with us as listeners and just a great reminder that two things. One, we are not God. Two, we are not the Holy Spirit, but we have a relationship with God and we can function and team up with the Holy Spirit. And I think that's where the healing process happens. And we have come to the very last question of our little segment here. So Drew, if you could tell a group of college pastors and young adult ministry leaders one thing, what would you leave them with today?
1: Mm. One thing. I'm so not good at only saying one thing. Um, gosh, I think that I would, what I would say is, and I, I think I mentioned it before, but I want to reiterate it. God is way more concerned with our relationship with him than he is about our sexual struggles. It may not be the first thing on God's priority list to address someone's sexuality, um, particularly with how, how deep and how consequential those things are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we might look at a person in, in our group or that we're called to minister to, and we see it as the number one issue. And that might just not be God's priority list ranking right now. Right. Um, I had a pastor who said a very homespun bit of wisdom, and I think it applies here. He so you can't clean a fish before you catch it.
0: That's
1: good. And... What that really, what it really says to me is that sanctification and salvation are two very different things. Mm. Yes. Um, identity and maturity are two different things too. Yeah. So what I mean by that is someone may be in Jesus and born again, and their identity is secure in him and who they are, but they might be very immature in how they live that out. And so when we look at the external, we make a list sometimes of the things we think are important in discipleship and in spiritual formation. And what I would say is push into what the Holy Spirit says for each person. Yeah. Because sexuality probably most of the time is not the number one issue that God is looking at for them. Because God wants to establish trust with, with each person. He wants to establish authority in our lives. Mm-hmm. And with something like sexuality, it takes a lot a person to be able to get to the point where they go okay I surrender so that's what I would leave that's what I'd leave you with
2: it's amazing I'm so glad you left us with that and listeners I just want to share something here in about 2016 Drew came to Minnesota and he had not yet written his book and I hosted him at this conference and there was such a long line with people waiting to talk to him and everyone was saying do you have a book do you have a book do you have a book and I just (laughs) I'm so glad for all of those people and for all of our listeners that he's put together his story in a resource called, Are We There Yet? And it's a book available on Amazon. It's a book available on his website, A Living Letter Ministries. And so- Yeah, livingletter.org. Livingletter.org, yes. And so we'll put that into the show notes. We'll make that available on our uh, social media as well. But Drew, thank you so much for creating that resource mm-hmm. and for taking time for a conversation today.
1: You're welcome. It's been such a pleasure. It's been so good to see you guys again. And uh, uh, anytime you want, I'll come back and talk more because Lord knows I talked.
2: Amazing. Hey,
0: things we need to hear and learn.
2: And listeners, if you have questions for the next time Drew comes on, please send them our way. Hit us up in the DMs. Feel free to reach out on our website. But for now... Drew, thanks so much for joining joining us today. And again, you can find out more about Drew Berriessa, Are We There Yet and A org. when you connect with us on social media at youngadults.today.
0: Till next time.